knowing what's coming next takes a little bit of the fear out of it. Hospice, or end-of-life care, is a concept that has been with humanity for centuries. But for the U.S., the inclusion of hospice as necessary medical care for terminal patients has only recently become accepted practice. One of the things about hospice is that it's the only service line that Medicare pays for. And although it comes with its own controversies, just like many aspects of medical care, I wanted to learn what hospice is for the people who provide it. And our goal is no regrets. We've been hearing from women near and far this season on how living in rural America affects their health. For this last episode of the season, we'll focus on the women working in a healthcare industry that might be a little misunderstood. Who will be with me at the end? Today on Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home. The, uh, Rural areas of the U.S. have a higher need for hospice care than urban areas, simply because the population of rural residents over 65 is larger here. But just like every other medical practice, the providers are also more limited. So we have no visiting hours. You come and go anytime you want to. In Murray, we are lucky to have a local hospice house that is funded by our county hospital. I am Sherry Boyd, and I am the director of hospice services for Murray Hospital. With the residential Anna May Owen Hospice House in Murray, patients in our county can receive hospice care either at home or in the hospice house, depending on their needs and desires. We are helping them complete this journey that we've all been on. Just like every other nursing profession, hospice nurses are overwhelmingly majority women. And Murray's hospice program currently doesn't have any male nurses on staff. This kind of work is a bit different than other nursing positions. I try to work to help them see that they have to have a different mindset for hospice nursing. They have to help the patients be able to weigh the benefit versus the burden of certain types of medical care. If it's not going to benefit them that much, then why go through the burden of it? the training like? Right off the bat, they get a full day to a day and a half with me, one-on-one. -on -one. I go through the history of hospice with them, the philosophy of hospice. I don't worry so much about nursing clinical skills as I do the attitude, the way they approach the patients and the families, the compassion that they have. With hospice, we are not looking to cure anything. We're not looking to fix anything. 
For the nurses that see patients in their homes, typically they start at the office. Uh, they'll try to plan a path. I, I admit that I am anxious before I do admissions or something um, where I'm anxious if we have a patient who I haven't met yet and they have a lot of issues going on or there's family issues going on. I sat down with several hospice nurses that work for Murray Calloway County Hospital at their homes. My name is Lisa Jones. I go by Lise. I am a PRN hospice nurse. I work as needed. I've always been interested in death. Even as a child, I was very interested in death and not necessarily afraid of it. My parents' church uh, was all white-haired, was all elderly, so we would go probably to a funeral a week. And because my mother wanted, felt that her way of, of serving God was to visit their friends in nursing homes and take care of them, so my mom would drag me as a little kid because there's nothing nursing homes love more than children, right? <laughs> right. Oh my gosh, yeah, right. everyone wants to touch you, <laughs> hug you. And so my mother would drag me along. My name is Pam Paschal. I work PRN as needed, so I'm retired. My dad was a fireman, so I think I always you know, looked up to him as being someone that helped someone. But I knew when I was in high school I wanted to be a nurse. I actually, years ago, worked in home health. And then um, the school nurse, Murray had never had a school nurse, and so I took that job. And they'll laugh at me because one little patient, she was you know, a little confused or whatever, and, and I'd say, now look at me. <laughs> and that's probably that country. <laughs> I'd say, now look at me. And then I think, oh, wait, these, you know, I'm not in the school anymore, but that's what I say, now look at me. And she would start laughing every time I say that. But she'd look at me, and then I'd get my, I'd say, now I'm gonna teach you this, so now look at me. There was an army of nurses that I felt like saved my life that day. Let's see, that was August 29th, 2015, when my daughter was born. I left the hospital into September. You decide almost immediately that you wanna pursue nursing? Yeah, I think I knew before I left the hospital. I'm Casey Cooper Bird. I am a registered nurse with the Anna Mae Owen Residential Hospice House in Murray. I was at the time working for a food distribution company, still in restaurants. I mean, that's still what I was doing. Um, and just was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to nursing school now. People always say, you did, that's two different worlds, restaurant business and nursing. But what I have said for a long time, it's all customer service. You know, I worked in intensive care through COVID and then taking this job with hospice, my mom and my husband both were like, are you sure that this is what you want to do? You know, you've had a lot of loss in the last few years and it's really affected you. Are you sure you want to go somewhere that that's all you're going to do is lose people? Working in the intensive care unit, and seeing what we put people through, you know, the body, the medicines, and, you know, take a drug to take a drug. It changed my own healthcare directive. I think the majority 
of the nurses that I've known have been ICU nurses who were all done with, because so many times they've had to have these conversations, right? And unnecessary treatments and trying to, you know, advocate for the patient, let her go, let her go. Obviously, every hospice nurse must learn how to face death. As Sherry discussed, it is a skill that can be learned. But one unexpectedly common experience was people's surprise at these nurses' choice to do this work. Just like Casey mentioned, they all had people in their lives who didn't believe that this could be a positive, even enlightening work experience, including other nurses. Nurses say, oh, I couldn't do that job. I, I, I'd be crying all the time, right? Yeah. And I get choked up just thinking about it. I, I, I show people my emotions. People come up to me now and they'll say, now, what are you doing? And I'll say, well, I'm working at the hospice house. And their whole body, their whole demeanor, their face, it's, oh, it's that, oh, you know, I don't know how you do that. And I said, well, it's not, it's not about just death. Educating the family about the dying process becomes a priority for hospice nurses. Knowing what's coming next takes a little bit of the fear out of it. I find, because I really like anatomy and physiology, understanding why the body is doing this really helps people deal with it when it, when it finally comes. I have been amazed at how much I've learned, you know, in this setting about the human body. It's, it's amazing what it can still do to the very end. The design, the mechanisms that happen. Terminal congestion, for example. The body begins to, to hold fluid, so there becomes a lot of fluid in the lungs. The body will run a temperature. Well, in that situation, the body starts a small temp because it's trying to evaporate that fluid away, right? Which helps with comfort and breathing. I've seen more of the process of death. I'll tell them now, their breathing pattern's gonna change. There can, you may look over and there's a period of time where there's 30 seconds and they're not breathing. And then they start breathing again. I said, that's normal, that, you know, that's part of it. There may be gasps. For instance, a death rattle. If somebody is completely lax, unresponsive, usually on their back, mouth open, whether they're tilted up a little bit or not, because they're not swallowing, the little bit of saliva pools in the bottom of the throat. And so when they breathe in and out, it makes a rattling sound. And it's far more upsetting to the family for patients that have come back out of that and become more responsive, they didn't seem to care. It's just a little tickly rattle. So if you can lay a person on their side for a while, that will work its way down. And then they're not breathing through it. But it's really upsetting to listen to somebody that you love breathing through bubbles. There are some meds for it, they just dry up the mouth. 
with any medication, there's a little bit of side effect to that too. So like if we put the scopolamine patch on them, it might make them sound a little better, but it's going to make them have really bad cotton mouth. Do Is that more comfortable for them? Probably not. So a lot of times it's, it's telling the family and, and making them understand. I promise you, they're not hurting or feeling this discomfort from that sound. It's bothering you. We can watch for signs and symptoms of things that tell us they're in distress or we can see that they're not in any distress. I feel like there is a point in the last typically 24 to 48 hours of a patient's life where what becomes uncomfortable is no longer them. It's the ones that are with them that become uncomfortable. And then we see those levels of um, they're eating, they're not eating. Their breathing was normal, now it has a different pattern. They have a fever, that's part of it. The body's dehydrating, that's part of the dying process. While hospice nurses work to normalize each stage of change in dying patients' bodies, some of the hardest parts of their jobs don't necessarily have anything to do with their clinical nursing skills. It has everything to do with their compassion for the patient. They just want it to stop. That's when we come back. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. And they've just made a choice that they're done, again, like I said, getting poked and prodded and this test and that test and this medicine and that medicine. They just, they just want it to stop. The hardest part of the job for the nurses I spoke with is mediating loved ones. They can come in and they want us to do A, B, and C to fix X, Y, and Z. Well, we're not doing that anymore. You know, we're not going to send them to the hospital to get a chest x-ray we're not going to probably start antibiotics because they don't want that anymore. There are medications we give, you know, specifically, let's just say, morphine, uh, lorazepam, which, you know, a lot of people have preconceived ideals of what that means based on, you know, what we've heard in the last even 20 years about morphine because there's a drug pandemic they come in and think, we're giving them drugs that are killing them. It's okay. If they don't want to eat, it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's a big area we see, you know, that in, in our society, what do we do when somebody's sick? Let's feed them. Let's give them food. And they just, well, mama's not eating or daddy's not eating. And it's okay. Everybody wants to, like, force-feed these people to just eat. I mean, think about, it. you know, if you were just laying in bed 24 hours a day and people are just forcing you to eat all this food, you're going to feel terrible. Do you ever feel like you kind of have to protect the patient in some ways from, those, from the family's actions? Absolutely. 
the family, oh my gosh, some of the families that just, there's, you know, uh, people showing up thinking that somebody's dying so they want to scope the house, you know, relatives arguing over whose watch this is, or I have to say the only times where I've really felt I had to win somebody over is when the first thing the family says is, well, our cousin is a doctor and he says blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, where does he live? And they say, you know, Florida. And I say, well, has he seen the scans? No, but he knows. It's like, well. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is, that is so frustrating. I've seen some with uh, what we call the terminal delirium. And that's hard because I know they have no idea what they're doing. I had a patient with what's called terminal delirium. And so he was throwing punches, didn't recognize his family, trying to get up, could not stand, hadn't been able to stand a long time, but didn't realize it, right? And it's almost like there's a, a really deep, primal moment of clarity that some people have, even in the middle of terrible confusion. And they, they feel like, if I can't get out of this bed, I'm going to die. I've got to get up. I've got to get up. I got to, and they make up stuff. I got to go to the store. I got to pick up, you know, Johnny, who's, you know, moved to uh, Idaho 10 years ago. So this moment that you're describing, this is a moment that happens right before death? Or? It, it, and it doesn't happen to many people. It's just when it happens, there's, there's not a lot of recourse. Someone who's in that much fear is not, it's not a good place to be. The family would be like, they would never do this. They would, and I'm like, it's okay. We don't, I'm not, we don't judge them. We know this is not them. Despite the amount of conflict a hospice nurse may encounter from family members, the hardest thing is when you have patients that don't have loved ones to be with them. There's a, there's a deep sadness in that to me, you know, that someone can not have someone at the bedside to hold their hand when the, the time comes. One of the hardest jobs I heard about was one I hadn't even considered before talking with these women. The only thing I said is that I, I didn't want to ever care for children at end of life because I didn't think that I could keep my emotions in check. When we've had children, Tanya has taken care of them. Tanya Kelly and I'm a registered nurse. I've been here about 20 years in August. First of all, just curious how you became the nurse that handles children's hospice. Because nobody else wanted to. Okay. <laughs> and still most of them don't want to. They don't want to. And what made you willing I don't know. I, just, I love kids. Um, my first huge experience with kids in nursing, I was still in nursing school. Um, I had just found out I was pregnant with my second child. And the kid that I had at St. Jude's was the same age as my oldest, um, which was four at that point. But when nobody else wanted to do it, um, I just continued. To, it was just, they needed just as much as adults. Do you remember roughly like how many children you've Probably about eight in my 20 years. So we don't get them real often. Um, 
but when we do get them, it's heartbreaking. When you've got a little one that hasn't had a chance to live that life yet, it's a little harder to have those conversations. Do you ever find yourself, when you're in the midst of the family, having to hold back emotion? Oh, absolutely. And I don't always. I mean, it's emotional. You're human. Honestly, I don't really know that the families even notice it at that point. They are so emotionally tied up themselves into what's going on. I had one mother that when the patient passed, she wanted me to take that baby in a Moses basket to the funeral home myself. That was hard. You know, we get so attached. There's always those memories there. There's always, you know, one little fella. (laughs) He hated my cold hands, so I went and bought special gloves to wear when I saw him, soft furry gloves, so that my cold hands didn't, you know, bother him. And I would go in and he would pretend to cut my leg off or cut my arm off. You know, he was a typical little boy, you know. (laughs) So there's always those memories that you're going to have that you, they're not going to leave. Probably 10 years ago, um, the insurance has changed so that they could be, pediatric patients can be on hospice, but still getting curative measures. That's not the case at all with adults, but pediatrics, they decided that patients or uh, families could have that hospice um, support and still be seeking curative measures. So that kind of makes it sometimes a little bit more difficult in treating the patient because there's a lot of things, you know, that we have a goal of one thing but then all of a sudden the doctor calls and says oh no we're going to do this and then they may change some of those medications that we've done or whatever because it doesn't go with what their goal is and to me it to me it almost gives those parents false hope as well the end result is probably going to be the same A lot of times we run into family members who don't want to tell their loved ones what's really wrong with them. So then you're kind of having to tiptoe around and patients asking, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I getting better? Why? I think the patient has the right, especially if they're in their right mind, they have the right to know what's going on and why they're not getting better and where, where we're headed with this. Regardless of their age? Yeah, realistically. I mean, obviously with kids, you have to explain it to them in a different way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I do. When a patient in in their right mind understands that they're terminal, they become so honest. Despite a process that seems destined to place endless obstacles in front of hospice nurses, I never heard any despair in any of the women's voices. In fact, it was quite the opposite. There were intense emotions, of course, but there was also a lot of hope resonating in their words when they look at you and say, am I really dying? And you can say, well, you know what? We do graduate people from hospice. When we get patients who say they've, they've been a bunch of doctors, they've had meds that were never discontinued, so now they're on 28 meds, right? They've, they've had everything wrong with them. And some, this happens. We, we 
they get home finally, we meet with them, we get rid of all the extraneous meds, right? And now they're at a place that's quiet, where they have food that they like, where they're with their dog, in their favorite, you know, comfy recliner, and we'll see people bounce back up a bit. And if you don't need the meds that you've been taking for however many years for something that happened once, if you don't really need these meds, you find that the appetite comes back. A lot of people feel better. They're glad they're doing better, mm. right? Graduating yeah. from hospice is right. great. <laughs> right, right, right. That's good news. Yeah. Best graduation you That's can That's right. <laughs> I'll see you guys later. And, and we just say we'll see you down the road. Yeah, okay. Casey told me about a man who, when this episode publishes, will have been in hospice for nearly five months. He's our diabetic who eats three milkshakes a day. When they came into the hospice house that day, they expected days, weeks. He has had to have part of his foot removed because that's typical with diabetes, right? Um, He's got osteomyelitis in the foot. He had an amputation. So he's in the hospital getting all these, you know, this battery of tests and medications and all the stuff. And they told him they were going to have to remove more of his leg to fight this infection. And he said, I don't want it. I'm done. I don't want to be cut on. I don't want to take your medicine. I'm just, I'm just done. And they had a hard time accepting that because he's a very vibrant man and he's 100% here. He even asked us recently, you know, he said, is it getting better? (laughs) And you just, you know, no, it's not going to get better, bud. His daughter, she and I have talked about it, and I've said, you know, I just try to make sure she still understands that, you know, he does have diabetes. So us not controlling his blood sugar right now is feeding that infection. I mean, you have to be very honest because, and she said recently, he even said, I thought this was the place where you came to die. <laughs> why, you know, why am I not, not dead yet? <laughs> He'll wave at you. If I come in here and talk to the nurses, I'm standing there. He's sitting there waving. Yeah. <laughs> he's apparently had a great time here. Yeah, he loves it here. And so. He's one of those. What have you learned about death since doing this work? Um, <laughs> I don't know about your podcast, like religion and stuff. That part of it, and I can get emotional, um, is just seeing that, you know, it's time. You know, it's their time. And they've gone through that process. It's hard. Sorry. It's wonderful. And we all feel that way. We'll come in from the office and say, oh my gosh, I just had, you know, so-and-so is actively dying and all kinds of wonderful things have happened. We were, we were bathing somebody and, I, and it was springtime and the door was open and the person's on a, on a big hospital bed in the middle of the living room and a dove flew in and landed on the foot of that hospital bed. We were stunned. We were stunned. And the bird just kind of looked around. 
and after a while we're like okay <laughs> we gotta work here shoot the bird out um and the family said when they all left to go to the to the funeral home for the funeral a dove was on the peak of their roof watching like watching them get in their cars and they were getting in their cars and went oh my god that dove is still there the number of people on their deathbed that will reach up or see people or there's always children women are always like what are those kids doing in here and all the you know the hospice people look at each other like okay we're getting close the same things just seem to happen no matter what their religion or uh, their race or their socioeconomic level they, they just kind of things happen. They, they see their loved ones, and oftentimes their loved ones are saying, I'll come back for you. This is where God wants me, or I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. Apparently it's something God wanted me to do. My faith has increased so much since I became a hospice nurse. There is such a huge part of the spiritual aspect of hospice nursing. And Medicare will tell you the reason they require a chaplain to be part of a hospice team and part of a patient's plan of care is that if a patient has a spiritual issue that is unresolved, it can cause a patient to have completely uncontrollable physical pain. It can cause them to linger for days and weeks longer. When they talk about like cardiac muscle, right? Your heart grows stronger by exercise. And I feel like my heart emotionally grows stronger by the emotional exercise of loving people and losing them. It's not abnormal for us to come on our day off and see somebody because it matters to us to see them before they're gone. This gentleman that recently passed that I was really close to, you know, everybody up there knew, if something happens, I want you to contact me. I, I did get to see him you know, before he was not responsive, again, to just get to say, I love you, buddy. I appreciate you, you know, the joy you brought to my life. You know, and we consider, we consider the family our patient as well. And I'll tell people when I'm um, at a death, I'll tell them we have grief recovery um, counseling. And I'll say, just so you know, technically your family now becomes our patient. But really the patient's been the family the whole time because we cannot get the care for a home patient to happen unless that family is on board. We, I'd say we all find it really um, an honor to be there. In the moment a death happens, emotions can feel perplexing. There is loss, but it's maybe not all sad, not all grief for those also on this journey. And it's usually a great relief. I'll tell families, especially if they've struggled through a disease. You know, I know you guys really worked to get through to this point. And I want you to know it's okay to be relieved. It's okay. 
as a normal thing to feel. You made it to the finish line for them. You, you helped them all the way, and it's okay to be relieved. This episode was produced by me, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Josh Adair, who generously volunteered his time for this entire season. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod and on Twitter at Rural underscore Stories. Our theme music was composed and produced by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring comes from APM Music. This is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program was made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.